This is In Search of the Pluriverse. We are Sophie Creer and Eric Wong. Join us on our quest for a world in which many worlds fit. We were invited by Het Nieuwe Instituut to be the first curators of their traveling academy. You can follow us online at pluriverse.hetnieuweinstituut.nl It's such a kaleidoscopic cultural uh, landscape. And then when you go back to that first people, how, how do you relate as, 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 a, as a Trini or a Trinidadian? Can we, can we say, do you, do you call yourself a Trini? Trini, that's fine. That's good. A Trini? <laughs> you, you like that word? I just, that I, just, I just hope everybody else understands. Yeah, so we, we, we refer to each other as a Trini. Yeah, are you a Trini? Um, yeah. We are all Trinis, yes. Or <laughs> more complicated, Trinbegonian, which is, the, which is more complicated. Trinbegonian, which is Trinidad and Tobago. And Trinidad, so that's Tobago. Tobago, yeah. Oh, Trinigonian. So if you're a Trini, invariably, Tobagonia would never say that they're a Trini. No, just of course not. <laughs> but if you say it official, would it then be Trinidadian? Um, Trinbegonian. Yeah, Trinbegonian. So, so to really acknowledge the twin island. Yes, yes. That you that you are. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And Sean, are you in Port of Spain right now? Where are you on Trinidad? Yes, I am in Port of Spain. Actually, it's raining heavily. It's beginning to subside. Uh, in these parts. You would find that you know the rain would suddenly fall very heavily, and then within seconds or minutes, it then it then disappears. And because um, um, Port of Spain is pretty much close to the northern range, what happens is that once the clouds are pushed up and over the mountains, they then they then the condensation then forces rain to fall on the other side of on the side of the mountain range, and that's where Port of Spain is. So but is it always the case, or is that is that a seasonal thing, or is it every day like that? No. So uh, typically, the rainy season would occur between the months of June and December. In the middle of that period, there is this anomaly called uh, in September called Pitikaran, which means there's a short dry season within that that that, that period. And then pretty much the dry season is then from January to May, January to May. Good you're luck, in Eric, with the, translating oh. this into an Instagram post. Well, we're talking about the weather. Well, listeners, welcome to our fifth uh, warming up talk to the Pluriverse. We already started. We started with the weather because that's how we tend to start these talks. Um, and Sean just introduced this to, to, to the Trinidad climate. And it's raining over there. It's five hours earlier um, here in Groningen. I'm in Groningen right now. It's raining too. And it's getting dark already, which is quite depressing. And it's very autumny, windy, rainy, nippy. It's quite cold. And um, mentally, how, how's your mental condition? How's your mental weather, Sophie? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very happy that we've crossed the ocean to... Uh to talk with you today, Sean. So I think up, up until now, we were sort of um, still a little bit careful with this in search of the pluriverse. You know, we were, let's confess, still playing safe, let's say, within our own 
maybe networks that are closer by on the European continent. <laughs> uh, and uh, so we're very happy to now uh, be with you today in Trinidad. Yeah, so let's uh, introduce you, Sean. We took your uh, bio from the, from the website from the Nieuwe Instituut, because that's also how we got to know you. And um, oops, it says that uh, you were born in 1962, that's always good to know, and that you're uh, a practicing architect who was trained in London and works and lives in Trinidad and Tobago. And you are one of the founding directors of the architecture practice C-O-R-D Limited. Is that how we pronounce it, Sean? Uh, Cord Limited. Cord Unlimited. Cord Limited, sorry. Cord Limited and has held executive positions in the Trinidad and Tobago Institute of Architects and the Federation of Caribbean Associations of Architects. You graduated from the Architectural Association in 1989 and worked in architecture for two and a half years in England, in London. And you are also um, the founding director of Alice Yard. In two 2006, you started that with three other uh, partners. And that's a contemporary art space located in Port, uh, Port of Spain, which hosts and facilitates an ongoing program of artists and artist projects, respectively, where networking, collaboration, improvisation, and play are key. And in 2020, this year, you were selected as the inaugural recipient of the Tilting Axis Het Nieuwe Institute Fellowship. So this fellowship is, has as a lead uh, partner and host Het Nieuwe Institute, but it also will include uh, collaborations in the coming period with the Amsterdam Museum, the Appel, the Black Archives, and uh, the Center of Contemporary Art, formerly known as Witte de Wit. Um, soon to be rebaptized as Meli. I don't know if you've heard about that story, Sean. Uh, but as Eric said, we, we got to know you because you were uh, you received this fellowship. Um, and um, 1962, Sean, isn't that the date that Trinidad uh, became independent also? You were born in the year of independence, right? Yes, I was. In interestingly, though, uh, which probably is not there in the bio, that uh, my parents were actually my father was actually studying in London at that time. So I was actually born in London while he was studying. And uh, after studying, they returned um, with their, my elder, elder brother and, and I to Trinidad, where we, we've been since. Yes, but we, uh, that's, that's a very important, of course, period, uh, an important year. You know, a lot of conversations around imagining what this new what this new moment means in terms of uh, defining what you are, what, where your focus should be um, as a nation. So that, uh, you know, I think a lot of interesting things happened, even, even sort of, you know, creatively during that period. So immediately after that period. Yeah, so maybe Sean, because a lot of people don't know the history of Trinidad Tobago, I think. So maybe you can take us uh, a little bit into your personal history to, to get to know you and, and, and your, your country. And maybe you can start with your grandmother, Alice, because your, your art space is, is named after her. And it was also her house, I think, where, where Alice's yard uh, is situated or was situated because we just learned that you've moved. Yes, that's, that's so interesting. And because the story of Trinidad is so much the story of the, the other islands because it remained uninhabited for so long. A lot of the population here 
have come, we've come from somewhere and invariably from one of the other islands. So my great grandmother, not my grandmother, my great grandmother, Alice, was actually from St. Lucia. And uh, she came to Trinidad with her mother and they, you know, married a Trinidadian and has been here. Interestingly also on my father's side, my grandfather is actually from St. Martin um, and the, the, mm -hmm. Dutch, the Dutch half of St. Martin, that's my grandfather. And again, what's interesting about the region is that uh, my grandmother left Trinidad and Tobago on my father's side to work in Venezuela uh, because there was oil there. And, uh, and my grandfather, of course, did the same, I think, via Aruba. And what's really interesting is that so many Trinidadians have this story that, you know, if you just go back two generations, we have come from, you know, one of the other islands. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just, you know, that's a, a kind of motif that would um, carry for most of us here. Is that what uh, we came across this expression, I'm a Trini? Is that, is that what that means? That you, what does that mean, I'm a Trini? It's just, it's really, I, it's just really very informal. It in, it in of itself it doesn't mean anything, but I mean, but the uttering of it between people suggests the nature of your relationship, not only with the person, but with the island. Well, it sounds like a proud name. It sounds also very cute, but it also sounds like something to be proud of. You know, if you're a Trini, it really means something. Okay, so for me, what's interesting about Trinidad, I suppose, is the fact that about its vol volatility and because we are all from somewhere, it's very difficult for us to articulate in very definitive terms what that means. So that, so the kind of, the kind of um, grounding that say a Jamaican has or a Bajan just by virtue of being colonized by the same country for so long, uh, there's a kind of a, and the, the issue of not having to, not having different peoples having to integrate very quickly and in a very small space. So that, you know, within a hundred years, you know, you had, you know, a significant Indian population as indentured laborers come to Trinidad that happened in the 1840s. So it's really, it's really an interesting space, which I think that the, the inability to sort of ground gives you space to kind of invent and create, you know, because you're not, you're not, you're not burdened by feeling that you've got to carry some, some sort of identity very specifically. For me, it's liberating and that the identity is actually in the complexity of the place. And that's the question, like, how do you carry that burden? You know, that's the question. Just having to work things out, you know, having no other option but to kind of work things out here, you know, so that we can live here together. Um, and, but you say you all came from the other islands, but you also had uh, first peoples, right? The Awarwark and Caribbean, yes. uh, I believe they were, uh, yes. these peoples were called. And um, I read that there, there are only 300, a very small number of descendants of these first peoples today on the island. Is um, How does that play a role in the, this construction of your identity as a, as a twin Twin islands, you could say, or as a twin nation. Well, well, again, what's really interesting about Trinidad in the context of um, the, the first peoples here is that um, even historically, Trinidad was a sort of, you know, uh, a stopping point, a kind of trans movement point um, between the between the continent and the other islands. 
so that you had lots of um, lots you had lots of in, in indigenous people sort of settling in different parts of the parts of the island. Of course, the Spanish tried to you know um, they created uh, what we call sort of missions, the, and of course the population was decimated really very 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 quickly. But what's really interesting for me is that for an island that has so few indigenous people, a lot of our toponyms, a lot of the names of places, a lot of the place names in Trinidad and Tobago are of, are of you know, indigenous... Uh, Naming or they refer to the land. Yeah, I mean, a lot, you know, Tunapuna, Mucarapo, Arapita Road. I mean, in Port of Spain, a lot of the streets still carry these names and there are lots of them. You, don't, you wouldn't find that in the other islands. It doesn't exist in the other islands. Is that language but, still alive, Sean? I mean, there's a lot of names come, come I, from first people. I, is language still alive? Um, my understanding is probably not. I can't, I can't say definitively. I, uh, you would find, though, that a lot of them carry Spanish surnames, which would talk about you know, the situation in which the indigenous Indians found themselves. It's all about, about making Christian answers, like conversion. That's also important. So that um, I forget the name of the line of, of missionaries that would have come here, that pretty much you know created these um, these missions, and of course they would change the names of the of the indigenous peoples so, uh, to Spanish names, and of course a lot of the the indigenous peoples here now they they tend to have surnames that are of Spanish origin. Mm -hmm. I mean, what you're sketching here, I think, is uh, something that we refer to within uh, especially literature, but also more and more in, in art context as this notion of creolization, um, different components, elements of identity of culture uh, coming together, colliding under a violent, um, in a violent context, whether it's the context of the plantation or of colonization. And, and Escobar talks about the notion of the, the vernacular in the book Designs for the Pre-Reverse, that is the, yeah, let's say the backdrop or the editorial framework of these talks for us. Um, he describes the vernacular as knowledge generated from within communities, which makes a kind of uh, what he calls autonomy possible, and generated through open political processes at a local level. And this notion of an open political process at a local level for him is what you need to have a certain autonomy as a, as a community. And for him, the vernacular is something you could oppose to, let's say, expert-driven, hierarchical uh, knowledge structures that divide. Is that, is that something that you recognize also in, uh, in, in Trinidad? Is that, how do these coexist, these both? Um, a, a question that's come up based on you know the the, the the outline that you've given is defining trying to define what community is in a in, in a context where everything is small you know is that now more significant in terms of community framing in an environment where the population is small and the space is small and then if you add the notion of sort of family and familial sort of networks um, in a, in a space that's small. Um, of course, as I mentioned earlier, we, we then have, you know, within a very short period of time, people coming from different, coming from different spaces, coming from China, India and Africa, of course. And of course, you had the, the colonial settlers, you know, a large um, Syrian Lebanese population 
Yeah, because I'm still uh, uh, lingering on that word smallness. You, you call it smallness. It's a small community. But how would you link that smallness to your own practice? Because you work a lot with local traditions, with local skills, with local knowledge, with local vibes, you could almost say. Can you tell us a little bit about, for instance, the, the, the carnival that you're really, that's sort of a central point of focus in your life and work? I think we, for me, you know, smallness allows intimacy. Uh, you know, it just makes things so much easier. Of course, there are, there are, there are complications to that also. But, you know, my, my, I, th I think what it allows me to do is, I suppose, it's, it becomes very easy to, to create, to, to, to form relationships at an intimate level. And therefore, you know, the, the, the transfer of information, I mean, you, you, you get to the bottom of things fairly, very, very quickly. You know, you just, you just develop uh, an ability to look closely, I suppose. What the, the issues that probably are, how do you transfer that, um, that proximity to the notion of thinking big and large? And I suppose to a large extent that, that guides a lot of what I do, feeling, knowing, believing that um, I often say there are wonderful things right under my nose and that, you know, how can I use my practice to see how these things accessible in a way that I can contribute to world information, world, world conversation. And can you mention some of those wonderful things under your nose? Oh, just the, the ability, for instance, uh, to improvise um, the importance of humor in terms of how you articulate situations and manage situations. Those things become really very real and powerful in, in, in the context of intimacy. Could you tell us a little, a little bit about the carnival? Because a lot of these things you mentioned come together there. It's, it's a lot about improv. It's a lot of about making something look good very quickly. But also it's about irony, right? And like Fun. Um, playing also with, I would say, nearly with um, power or playing with images. Like we, we were reading that the, it was actually when the French came over, the French Creole, when they came over to Trinidad after the French Revolution, that they introduced, let's say, their no, their tradition of carnival and that only when uh, after emancipation day which you still celebrate of course today the persons that had been enslaved were allowed to join in and then they actually made a parody of the french version of the carnival is that is that a correct reading or that's 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 pretty it's pretty accurate um of course the the the, the french the their the, 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 the founding gesture was actually um the ball the master ball as opposed to carnival so it was a, an internal exclusive event and of course uh sort of things happened you know they appropriated by by the slaves and uh it became what it is right now but it's wonderful that it's such an elite thing became what it is today and again i think that that that's something that's really plausible and possible in the context of of of, of smallness you know mm -hmm. that part of the that negotiation has to happen. That's a negotiation there. It 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 makes those it makes that kind of um, that scenario possible. You know. And what's carnival like today then? Because uh, I saw it still happened last winter because it's somewhere in February. Yes, right. Normally. So it was right before, of course, the whole pandemic. How would oh, well? Uh, we 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 know that there will not be a carnival next year. That's already been decided. 
1972, we had a polio epidemic here. Mm -hmm. And on that period, what they did was that they postponed the carnival by three months into May. The, the, the notion of not having it just wasn't something to wasn't something to, to even to, you know to consider. To, yes, yes, Eric. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was I was just ready to, to making a move in the talk because we stumbled upon this interesting anecdote. It's it's a funny story, I think, that you entered the the this prestigious architecture school in London with a portfolio that was that was built up with, with carnival costumes and not with architecture. And it seems like a theme throughout your career that you really like to link the idea of a garment as a construction to a building, to a more like, like, like what we tend to see as a construction in architecture. But a garment is also, of course, also constructed. But um, before we get into that practice where, in which you link the body, costume and architecture, how was it in London? Because we never, I really want to know how it was for you to arrive there as a 20 year old yeah. Trini in London. <laughs> how did that go? And how, how, was, how was your study time there? I think, for, I mean, fortunately for me, uh, an institution like the Architectural Association just means that uh, a large percentage of the, the studentship are, you know, are foreign. So that the, the issue was not so much negotiating, say, Britain or England per se, but, you know, just being in the middle of this world that was the world. And, and so you constantly, depending on who you're interacting with, you constantly kind of needing to switch gear in terms of levels of, you know, listening and awareness and contributing. That to me was really very uh, enjoyable about the space. It's, an, it's a, Eric, it's interesting that, you know, you, you spoke about my, my portfolio and then you began to give a kind of, um, almost a, a kind of thesis on, on, you know, the, the notion of wearing and, and, and clothing as, space forming immediately around your body and, and that was the word i was looking for <laughs> space forming yes space forming uh, is a good word and, uh, uh but I, I you know i would i i think you know um uh, i would i would it would not be truthful to say though that um in presenting that in the portfolio that i i i thought about it in those terms or even knew that that that, that sort of conversation exists for me it has a lot to do with all as a child growing up uh, you know this event and these pe and people that we would know um, they transform they change and for me you know during this period and for me that was just just awesome enjoying being part of that being part of that transformation I think has a lot to do with my interest in carnival and was it only this sense of being in in awe right you you said yeah. A W E yes. Was it only this sense of being in awe, or was it also the preparation up to the carnival? I'm bringing us back to the island, Eric, in case you didn't notice. Let's <laughs> go back to the island. <laughs> was it also the preparations? Because we, we missed one thing I would like to touch on, and it's this yard tradition. You, men you mentioned that um, your contemporary art space, Alice Yard, um, in a way also builds on this yard tradition in Trinidad. Could you comment that a little bit? Well, certainly in the context of carnival, uh, I, can, I can't think of any, probably the close, maybe one space 
where one can consider dedicated to the production in a sort of, you know, in a, in a massive way, in the production of carnival, carnival costume. Invariably, it happens in the backyards of, of people's homes. And um, for me, it's, it's, the word yard has a lot of resonance. You, know, you speak of Kosa Yards, which is another festival here linked to our, our, our East Indian um, heritage population. The pan yard, it's not a pan space, it's called a pan yard where you practice. Our savannah, where a lot of in, in Port of Spain, it's called amicably the big yard, you know. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, it's there. So, somehow that word definitely has a, a resonance performatively, ethically, maybe even culturally in, 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 in the psyche of the Trinidad. And for me, you know, Alice Yard was probably a way to, yes, just for me to maybe test, celebrate, investigate that, you know, all at the same time. And of, and of course, the area in which Alice Yard existed, which is called Woodbrook in Port of Spain, a lot of creative activity would come out of, you know, um, yard spaces in that, in that community. Theatres actually evolved really very important from that and came out of, you know, literally being a stage and an audience being set up in, in this choreographer's yard, Baron McGoon. She started um, performances in the back of her backyard. And now there's a theater that's in her, that's on the same site. And of course, there's a barrack yard, which has another kind of residence, which is linked more to, it's a slavery. You know, these are small, very small spaces. And my grandparents lived in a barrack yard, which basically at the back of a very small house, you had an open space and people just lived in very small rooms. You would share that you would share the toilet and the bathroom and the, the washing facility and that was a sort of barrack yard and a lot of creative of course and other kinds of activity <laughs> came out of came out of those sort of spaces so that the, yeah the yard certainly has a, a, a kind of you know resonance eric you wanted to yeah <laughs> you're making strange signs i didn't pick that up yeah i was wondering what 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 Alice Yard um, adds to that to that culture or that to that system of yards and, and and communities of yards because she started it with with three other makers yeah makers with different qualities there's an editor there there's an artist there so how does it practically work this Alice Yard in the context of continuing the story of the yard or actually because it's it's linked to it yes uh, I think that's an important observation that you know. Again, because of, of, of the parameter, the spatial parameters of yard spaces, negotiation is important. So that uh, Alice Yard, my family space, many members of my family lived there. You know, my mother, my brother from old, my uncles, my cousins, you know, members of different members of the extended family simultaneously. But it's a very small space. So what, and that happens. That happens. Like that's typical. What's interesting about that scenario is that you now have to negotiate. You know, between washing the car, you know, um, playing playing cricket, riding a bike, you know, you just had to. Or having an art show. Having, and I, I thought that 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 was certainly an ethic that I wanted Alice Yard to have, and so by having trying to accommodate different kinds of 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 of, of creative dispositions and activities, including the way that we are constituted as a group, and then um, in terms of the way that we managed the space. It was certainly about seeing, you know, um, how things, how interactions happen. And so there was always an interest in accommodating, you know, different kinds of projects, 
sometimes simultaneously, you know, sometimes somebody would want to use the banjo when somebody's going to set something up. And then what would happen is that, you know, a musician that's using the banjo would have a conversation with the artist and then he becomes involved in his or her project. You know, that's just, you know, that's just like wonderful, you know, to, to observe. And, and all, and to a large extent, you know, it doesn't sort of require a management or managerial manifesto on the part of the director. It's probably more a disposition. Well, it sounds that. like a wonderful mix of negotiating and collaborating in a way, sort of a, because it, you, you make that yard or that sort of defined space very productive in that sense, also because it, it, you cannot do everything at the same time yeah. there. So, and, 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 and if you, you're with a bunch of people with different skills and different perspectives, you can really work together and create new things. Or, or not work together. <laughs> or not work together. Or not work together <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> or not work together at the same time. You know, uh, you know, it, it just means that you, know, you have to have a conversation about it. You know, yeah, and that's and that's where it starts. But no, invariably things happen. I mean, you know, it, you know, and again, I think I recognize it has a lot to do with how you know the disposition that you carry into the conversation. It just allows things to happen. But Sean, let's get back a little bit to to your practice as an architect. You somehow kept that uh, that link between costumes and architecture and making space. Can you tell us something about that, those swamp pavilions you created, which are also kind of linked to the Moko Jumbi uh, tradition, right? Thank you for pointing that out to me, Eric. Until you mentioned it uh, recently, I'd never thought about it. it, it and, you know, it's, it's strange that, you know, things happen almost intuitively. Well, maybe it's because maybe it's, I'm seeing it in it because I'm working at the textile department of an art school. And in that textile department, it's constantly about constructing and when be, does a garment becomes a space and when does a space become a building and vice versa. So there's, a, there's an interesting gradient between yeah. a sweater we wear and a tent that we are all occupying at the same time. And mm -hmm. I really recognize that in your way of working. And I think that's very inspiring. What was interesting in terms of what you said, what it prompted in my mind was again a very the notion of the stilt, the structure sat on stilts. So that's actually where I went when you mentioned it. Because you know, my gosh, Sean, yes, the structure sits on stilts and um Mokajabis are stilt walkers. But certainly in terms of of you know being responsive to physically to your literally and physically to your environment, you know, a costume has to do that. It has to, you know, it, it has to it has to. It had to move as comfortably as it can with the performer, negotiating you know, the wind. That again, that word negotiation. I think that's uh, certainly the link there. Could you could you maybe elaborate on this by taking the moko jumbi? I'm thinking of our listeners who perhaps have never seen a moko jumbi. Could you okay. elaborate how the moko jumbi figure in Carnival uh, negotiates things like wind, like people, like? <laughs> Um, I don't know, the shape of the landscape, because, um, yeah, just how conc very concretely within that costume figure it's negotiated these elements, and then how you translated that into your swamp pavilion. <laughs> yeah, so the, 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 the Mokodambi is what I termed the, the Trinidadian version of a costumed stilt walker. And of course, stilt walking occurs all over the world. And uh, invariably, uh, the Mokojambi would make its presence in the context of carnival. Yes. Um, the negotiation, uh, I think, is probably linked primarily to agility. 
when you see how you know people perform and the things that they do on stilts here on the Mokujambis, it's fascinating. And so a lot of the ability to negotiate the environment uh, physically has to do with your level of agility and your desire to perform in the context of you know having lots of people because it, it's not as if you're seeing people as being prohibited. It's actually that is the that is the excuse and the reason for you to now you know do what you do. Mm. And what does it mean to be so high up? The Mokojambi as a as a motif is sort of you know enjoying a resurgence and interest here in Finland over the last you know I'd say decade or so. One of the more recent instigators is one of our co-administrators, uh, Kristen Chen. He does um, a lot of work with them. So that, you know, I have been on a two foot still. Uh, that's, as, that's as high as I've been. Clearly, there must be something empowering about being, you know, lofty, so much higher than everybody else. But not only in terms of, not only dimensional, but also being able to move at that height. We read, we read an article about it, and I really like the invitation that these stealth walkers give to people that want to join. And they say, are you joining us up here? You know, as, a, as if it's another level of living or another level of being. Did you ever join them up there? I know I have never joined them. And I certainly, I probably wouldn't at this age. You're joining them in imagination with your house on stilts. Yeah. That's safer, uh, Sophie. That's much safer. <laughs> but tell us, tell us about this house, house on stilts. It's a kind of eco lodge that you've designed about like ten years ago, or it's an, a space that can be occupied um, temporarily within uh, the natural environment of a swamp, using the discarded material from the landfill just north and our oil producing industrial um, estate just south of it. Part of the research is really also just trying to look at how architecture can be a register for things that are happening and for also informing. There's maybe a kind of awareness that comes to the problem of having these two activities so close to the swamp by making occupation of it comfortable in a particular way. And so the project really was about trying to explore if that was possible as a environmental kind of sociological gesture. And then there's a sort of technical, I suppose, and architectonic component of it, which is then, so how does this thing work? And yeah, and it's sort of developed those ideas, you know, moving with the tidal changes of the swamp, being in close proximity to the water, you know, being very small, um, having the potential or the ability to be dismantled easily, you know, uh, so the idea is not, it's about temporal occupation, not the mm. Those are things that informed, informed the project. Eric, you made, uh, when we spoke about it before, you made an interesting parallel with the oil platforms for the offshore uh, mm. gas. The yeah, oil and gas when, I, when I looked at, your, at the images of the stealth houses, I, I had to think about these enormous um, industrial uh, oil platforms in the sea because they are built yeah, with the same, they, they needed to work with the same elements as you do in the swamp it, for a totally different reason and with a different outcome. But somehow the silhouette is, is sort of similar. Maybe that silhouette was in the back of my mind. I can't say that 
have made the connection in the way that you have, you know, creatively and intellectually. But yes, it, that seems to make a lot of sense because it is about this thing that's literally, um, you know, the proportions are, you know, um, columnar and, and, and tall and um, discrete in footprint and necessarily so because of where it's located for in both situations, in both scenarios, you know, a, an oil platform uh, and, you know, one of these mangrove lodges in the middle of Karani Swamp. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's fascinating. You have written in your, um, in your text for the Tilting Access Fellowship that for you the architectural gesture can be a commentary on its build or on the natural environment and a commentary that you read through its materiality, through its materials. So uh, in a way you could indeed perhaps see this small house on tilts as a, a small, again, mm -hmm. <laughs> version of the very big uh, one's out at seashore and with a completely different uh, ambition, obviously. Yeah. One to one to preserve the natural environment and the other to extract uh, things from it. But, but, but interesting parallel though is that they're both considered temporary structures, which is interesting also in terms of where they where they link. I mean, just just to add to, to your comment, Sophie, that in addition to materiality is occupation. And the relation of you know occupation as humans with that materiality that's also important you know? so that uh, so the architectural gesture is not only about the form but the relation of that as a thing but the relation of that form and thing to how we as human beings navigate it so sure now you are taking the uh that experience with the stealth house in the swamp you take it to the mainland you're going to take it to suriname can you tell us a little bit about that new project you just started and working together with Marcel Pinas in Suriname? The research fellowship gives me the opportunity to now look at the relationship of how another culture and community um, builds around the presence, you know, appreciation of, of water. And in this case, the Juca Maroons in, in Suriname. And of course, the Maroons are Maroons because they have managed to, to, uh, to avoid slavery through you know, living in the interior of, of Suriname. My sense is that therefore, an, an environmental feature like the river, which facilitated your autonomy, then how has that continued to facilitate your sustainability you know, over time? And to see what are the things that um, that community would have done in terms of building and making. And yeah, so that's, that's, the, found, that's the foundation of it. And Marcel, who is Maroon, would give me sort of entry into, in the first instance, entry into that investigation. And to get back to that idea of, of being on an island and, and, and how that relates to being on a continent, is it essentially different then to work now on the mainland of South America? And instead of working on the island of Trinidad? Or does it feel a little bit the same? Uh, it, because it, the, nature, the, 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 the nature and the circumstances are so overwhelmingly present. Yes, it, I think it's a bit of both. Uh, clearly, geographically um, and spatially, you, you know that you're, you're somewhere else. So that, you know, just, just by virtue of the size and scale of the rivers, you know, they're just massive. There's nothing like that on, a, on an island here. What probably is comparable is this, the scale of settlement. A lot of the, the conversation with the landscape and building around the landscape has to do with occupying discreetly and for a short time and then moving on. Yes, 
and I maybe that is a that is an ethic that has carried through to the Maroons because you know settlements aren't large. Communities probably break up as opposed to just grow, just by virtue of your understanding of how the how that that environment how that environment works. And maybe that notion of scale and size of community is something that maybe I might be comfortable with being from a uh, for me from an island where you know just by just by virtue of size. So then maybe that's you know that's where you know, I can probably I probably will be able to make a, a comfortable link as it were. But certainly. Um, geographically and physically, you know, two different worlds. Mm. We there is to some extent because of where Trinidad is located, the fauna, the flora tend to replicate that at that of the continent, as opposed to the other islands north of us, because you know we're, we're literally you know um, geographically you are closer to the mainland. Right? Yeah, so we were connected at one point. Some of the the trees that we would see here, which are large. You know, they're much bigger there in South America. Yeah, I like that, what you say about the scale of the landscape, that, that you really feel that it's like a big continent instead of this sort of small, <laughs> petite island. But within the bigness of the of the continent, there's still that smallest that you're looking for within these small communities that somehow need to thrive and survive within these extreme uh, conditions. Yeah. Interesting, yes. Can I just bring in one more reading that I'm... I'm reading a book by Denetem Twambona. Maybe you know him? No, no, I don't. No. The French title is Fugitif ou Courtu. So, um, run away, where are you running mm -hmm. to? Because often um, marooning in, in English is indeed uh, translated a bit simply as run away, running away. But you said very aptly avoiding slavery. Actually, you didn't say running away, you said avoiding. And in French, the word... Uh, we call, we call it fugue, fugue, and uh, in uh, music also, in fugue musicale is like when the music takes you somewhere else. Ah, so okay. it's not escaping, it's not running away, it's actually opening up another reality. The art of marooning is an, uh, an art of maybe avoidance, but also an art of variation, of always, let's say, popping up there where you are not being expected, disappearing mm -hmm. when you need to disappear and popping up when you need to to reappear. And so he also writes that uh, it implies a form of nomadism, as you mentioned, uh, of even if you're in the same place, you will be nomadic in that place to not be pinned down, let's say. So it's indeed this, I think it really resonates with what you mentioned, this notion of sensitive and temporal occupations. And, and what, what, what's interesting about you saying this, Sophie, is that by extension, with marooning, there's becomes a level of sort of, of bravery with, with a, a sort of responsiveness, a constructive responsiveness, the changing and moving, that it's not about, yes, it's to talk about possibility, the comforts of maybe permanence and stability in a certain we just don't apply to how you see the world, you know? I think that's really, really fascinating. So, Sean, and the next stop, I mean, the Suriname project is in, in, in becoming or is becoming? But you're also planning to visit the Netherlands, right? Yes, I am. And why was it important for you to pat, to first be in Suriname before you would come to the Netherlands? You, you mentioned that last week when we first talked. It's again, it's about the, the carrying of your, your entry into information and your carrying of that information. And to me, I wanted this to be a situation where I 
was clearly and comfortably carrying something to another environment to be tested. So that, uh, and, and of course that carrying also allows me to share, looking at it through another lens, but, me, but my being very aware that um, that's what I'm doing. Interestingly, let us see what are the things that allow through that sharing, allow me to then return to, to, to Suriname and then, you know, again, test and contribute in some way to the sustainability of, of that environment. Because um, I, I don't believe that, you know, the, anything external to the, the maroon community is, is necessarily bad. I think the, the real issue, the more the real fascination is how we as human beings negotiate our receipt of information and use it. What are the things that, what are the things that we are trying to achieve? That to me is, should be the kind of uh, catalyst for, you know, anything that we do, how can I do that? Maybe through this residency, there's a possibility of this happening. Um, but recognizing that it's not about isolation, it's about communication. You know, I would, I would, I would really be uh, honored to, to meet up with you if you're in the Netherlands, or we would like to meet you if you're here. And to be honest, I would really love to go back with you then to Suriname <laughs> and to Trinidad if that was possible. Um, it was a very uh, inspiring and uh, colorful talk we had. Um, I think it's time to for our outro, Sophie, don't you think? So indeed, uh, Sean, <laughs> it's time to wrap up. Thank you so much for this uh, wonderful talk. And uh, it was really great to be able to speak with you. Thank you, guys. Okay, thank you very <laughs> thank much. Thank you very much, Sean. Thank you. Well, listeners, this was the fifth warming up talk of the series In Search of the Pluriverse. Stay tuned for the next warming up talk. For more background on this project, you can dig into our Traveling Academy web magazine at pluriverse.headneweinstitute.nl and then you can click EN for English. You can read the book via the link we posted under about the Pluriverse or you can follow us on Instagram at In Search of the Pluriverse. Your hosts today were Sophie Creer and Eric Wong, and the tune was made by Jakomiri, and In Search of the Pluriverse is part of the Traveling Academy, an initiative of Het Nieuwe Instituut Rotterdam that explores how formal and informal knowledges can reinforce each other in tackling social and spatial issues. Yay! <laughs> <laughs>